Welcome back. I am so glad you are here listening to this show today. I cannot believe we are already on episode four, but here we are, and I'm glad that you're along for the ride. My name is Noah Dieselkamp, and I'd like to tell you a story. I'd like to tell you a story, if you've got the time. Russia. That name will probably bring very different things to mind depending on who you are. Perhaps you hear it and automatically think of Putin and current events. Perhaps you remember living through the Cold War that stretched through the mid and late 20th century and that is what automatically comes to mind for you. Perhaps you're a history buff and mentioning Russia gets you thinking about the centuries of Sardom prior to the revolution of 1917. I know when I hear Russia, I think of lots of names I find very difficult to pronounce. Well, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is that this story spans much of the time periods I just mentioned. The bad news is it's not really about SARS, mutually assured destruction, or modern politics. It's about a man and his invention. An invention that was ahead of its time and would change the world. A man whose name would be largely forgotten by those outside his field, but whose invention is known and loved and hated by people of all ages. Before we get to him, however, I do want to back up and talk about Sars. Specifically, Peter I, also known as Peter the Great, a Tsar of Russia who reigned from 1682 to 1725, the year he died. He would probably prefer that I refer to him as Emperor, so I'll try to do so from here on out. Peter was an ambitious emperor, responsible for a large amount of political change in Russia during his reign. Though he died before it officially opened, one of his longest-lasting legacies is that he and his wife organized the Academy of Sciences and Arts, which would go on to be known by multiple names over the next 250 years, but is currently named the Russian Academy of Sciences. By the end of the 18th century, what Peter and his wife had started would become one of the leading centers of European progress in science and technology. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily associate Russia with invention. But over the past couple of centuries, the country, and especially the Academy of Sciences, has some pretty big items to its name. A few examples for you. In 1874, Alexander Ludigin was recognized for his invention of an incandescent light bulb five years before Edison. In 1964, Nikolai Basov and Alexander Prokhorov both received a Nobel Prize in Physics for work and research that laid the foundation for lasers. And, of course, in 1957, Russia launched the first artificial satellite, Sputnik, into space. All of those inventions have dramatically changed our lives since their inception, while naturally being improved upon along the way. After all, Sputnik certainly isn't helping with Google Maps or beaming down your satellite TV service. While the invention which is at the center of this story today may not have had as large an impact on your daily life as, say, the invention of the laser, it certainly has made a notable impact on numerous cultures worldwide. Perhaps most impressively, it's done so with minimal change to its basic structure and mechanics. 
We pick up now in Moscow in 1984, specifically at the Dorodnichin Computing Center, a subsection of the then Soviet Academy of Sciences. 29-year-old programmer Alexei Pajetnov worked in a computing lab there, developing software and testing hardware from across the world. It was in this context that his invention was conceived and initially produced. Little did he know at the time that in the coming years his invention would spur on an industry-wide race for the rights to his software. Multiple legal discrepancies would take place to determine who had the rights to profit from his work, and Alexei himself would not see a single kopeck of real profit for over 10 years. Indeed, once his invention caught on, Alexei would not again have full control over its production or profit until two decades later. In the meantime, however, his brilliant piece of software would break down barriers, helping the perception of the computer morph from an intimidating, business-oriented machine to something more accessible, even enjoyable. Yes, I'm talking about a video game. But... This isn't just any video game. Alexei's brainchild has been described as, quote, the only perfect video game, end quote. And based on the massive generation-spanning appeal it has carried for over 35 years, that might actually be an accurate description. According to Alexei, the video game was inspired by puzzle toys that he had played with when he was younger, toys called pentominoes. Now, I'll admit that before researching Alexei and his video game, I didn't know that pentominoes existed, nor that they are part of a larger group of shapes called polyominoes. A polyomino is a shape created by equal-sized squares connected to each other on a minimum of one side. The word came about as an appropriation of the word domino, which happens to be a polyomino made up of two equal-sided squares connected together. As a result, we now also have the words monomino, made up of a single square, triomino, made up of three squares, tetromino, made up of four squares, etc. So, these pentomino games that Alexei played as a young man were puzzle games that involved fitting a variety of these five-square shapes into a field. If it helps you picture it, a modern and competitive play equivalent could be found in the board game Blockus. While working on the Russian computer Electronica 60, Alexei began envisioning a game that involved fitting these polyominoes together as they fell into a well or glass. Though the puzzles he was used to used pentominoes, five square shapes, Alexei decided that the number of different combinations for that kind of shape were too many and would be too complex for the game he wanted to design. So he decided instead to use tetrominoes, four square shapes, to keep the game simpler and more manageable. Keep in mind that the Electronica 60 computer he was using did not have a graphic user interface, and the display was therefore entirely text-based. This means all the visual elements for the game, including the tetronomos, had to be made up of text symbols. He quickly ran into another problem, though. No matter how efficiently he fit these tetrominoes together as they fell into the well, it filled up the screen in less than 30 seconds. Alexei's solution was simple. 
if you completed a row across the well, it disappeared since it was no longer needed for the gameplay. Not only did this mean that you could play for much longer than before, it introduced strategy and gameplay still at the center of this video game today. Alexei's process for naming the game is one of my favorite parts of this game's history. He took the Greek word tetra, meaning the number four, and combined it with the name of his favorite sport, tennis, which was entirely unrelated to the video game itself. The result? Tetris. Tetris was an immediate hit. Initially, copies of it were just being passed around on floppy disks, circulating organically and rapidly, even so far as being smuggled into Hungary. Developers outside of the Soviet Union started to get their hands on it and began producing unauthorized copies of Alexei's game. Robert Stein, owner of Andromeda Software, saw a display of Tetris at the Hungarian Institute of Technology and decided he wanted to license the game. This was not as simple as going to Alexei and striking a deal with him. By this time, Alexei had brokered a deal with the Soviet government. He was fairly sure that trying to publish the game on his own would get him in trouble, so he granted the rights to the Soviet government for 10 years. That meant that for Stein to license the game outside the USSR, he had to make a deal with the Soviet government's software agency, Elorg. Stein was able to broker a deal with Elorg, but hindsight is 2020, and Stein made a couple of mistakes in his deal that would dramatically alter the future of Tetris. Stein's licensing agreement with Elorg meant that Stein had rights for Tetris on personal computers, and in 1987 he quickly licensed it with distributors Spectrum Holobyte and Mirrorsoft in the US and UK respectively. These western versions of the game were very Russia-forward, replete with images of Russian architecture and Soviet flags, and topped with the slogan, From Russia with Love. Importantly, Stein did not have licensing rights for arcade or handheld machines. However, Stein was certain he would soon have those licensing rights and began deals with console companies, Sega and Atari, for arcade and console versions of Tetris. This is where things get really downright confusing. Another interested party, Hank Rogers of Bulletproof Software, wanted to get Tetris on the new and extremely successful Nintendo Entertainment System, also known as the NES. He licensed Tetris for Nintendo through Spectrum Holobyte, who was licensed through Robert Stein. But Stein didn't actually have Elorg's permission to use Tetris on anything but a personal computer. Not aware of this, Nintendo manufactured a version of the Tetris for the NES. In 1989, Nintendo was working on their next big release, the handheld gaming device known as the Game Boy. With this development, Hank Rogers, who had brokered the deal between Spectrum Holobyte and Nintendo, visited Moscow in an effort to broker another deal this time directly with Elorg to get rights for the handheld production of Tetris. In an attempt to convince them of its profitability, he showed them a Tetris cartridge from the NES, 
That tagline on these units was from Russia with fun. When shown these game cartridges, the Soviet software agency was incredulous. They had not signed any contracts or given licensing rights for a console version of Tetris. This meant that all the sub-licensing that Robert Stein or Mirrorsoft or Spectrum Holobyte had done to console and arcade companies such as Sega, Atari, and even Nintendo was invalid. Upon hearing this information, Hank Rogers, seeing an opportunity, pounced. He convinced Elorg that if the console and handheld licenses were, in fact, still unclaimed, that Elorg should sign these rights exclusively to Nintendo. Naturally, Sega and Atari were very unhappy. Knockdown, drag-out legal battles ensued, but when the dust settled, Nintendo and Hank Rogers were on top with exclusive console and handheld licensing rights to Tetris, leaving the arcade and computer licensing in the hands of Robert Stein and Andromeda Software. In retrospect, the partnership that Rogers had created between Tetris and Nintendo ended up being one that most likely changed the video game industry forever. When Nintendo of America was debuting their very first Game Boy, they had decided to include the game Super Mario Land with every unit. Upon hearing this, Rogers told the CEO of Nintendo of America, quote, If you want little boys to buy your machine, include Mario. But if you want everyone to buy your machine, include Tetris. End quote. They may not have known it then, but the moment that Nintendo of America agreed to pack in Tetris with all their Game Boy units, the success of both Alexei Pajitnov's little game and that of the Nintendo's first handheld game system were sealed. In the words of Hank Rogers, quote, I guess it worked. People say Tetris made Game Boy and Game Boy made Tetris. Both statements are true. End quote. Perhaps the thing I like most about this story is that it does have a happy ending, just not right away. You may remember I mentioned that Alexei Pachinov, the man who invented the video game that swept the globe, had agreed to a 10-year licensing agreement with the Soviet government so as not to get in trouble. Alexei was in no position to negotiate, so this agreement made no reservation for royalties on Alexei's behalf. In those 10 years, it is estimated that Alexei missed out on $40 million in royalties from the licensing and sale of Tetris. In the meantime, Alexei had continued to develop other games based on similar concepts to that of Tetris. One called Hattress, a similar game to Tetris but with hats. One called Wordtress, also similar but with letters and words. And one called Weltress, essentially a three-dimensional, top-down version of Tetris. But none of these enjoyed the same attention or success as Tetris. So, how do we get to a happy ending? Well, that actually starts in 1989, when Hank Rogers visited Moscow to bid for the handheld licensing of Tetris. During these negotiations, he met Alexei, and the two men became good friends. 
When the 10-year agreement between Elorg and Alexei came to an end in 1995, Alexei contacted Rogers, asking for his assistance because he was confident that Elorg would claim that Alexei never had any rights to Tetris in the first place. Together, Alexei and Rogers were able to strike a deal with Elorg and created a new company called the Tetris Company. In 1996, with the dissolution of the Soviet government, Elorg became a private company, which in turn made the best part of all possible. In 2005, the Tetris Company, still headed by Alexei and Rogers, purchased Elorg, returning all licensing and intellectual property rights back to the man who, 21 years earlier, had simply wanted to make a fun puzzle game for his computer. He may not originally have intended to make anything extraordinary, but over the past 36 years, Alexei and his little game have gone to sell over 470 million copies easily, topping the sales charts, and set three Guinness World Records along the way. Tetris has challenged and probably frustrated generations of people, regardless of age or level of tech savvy, and I suspect its appeal won't end soon. As Hank Rogers said, if the screen has enough dots to display it, Tetris will be on it. In the end, Alexei Pachinov said, quote, My main priority was to see people enjoying my game. End quote. And you know what, Alexei? I think you succeeded in that. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy this podcast, please pass it on so others can enjoy it as well. Remember, good stories are worth sharing. As always, the music in this podcast was written and produced by Benjamin Holloway. For his information, as well as a transcript for this podcast with sources, please visit my website at bit.ly slash podcast. That's bit.ly slash podcast.